The code sets up high standards of performance for motion picture producers. It states the considerations which good taste and community value make necessary in this universal form of entertainment. Hi, so that was a 1930 recording of Will Hayes, the former U.S. Postmaster General and the creator of the Hayes Code or the Motion Picture Production Code, talking about the need for regulation of Hollywood film. One of the many, many things prohibited by the Hayes Code was open representations of queer people and overt depictions of sexuality. The Hayes Code was in effect from about 1930 until the early 1960s, but it's had a pretty lasting impact on American film and on how audiences and filmmakers are trained to read queerness into film, whether or not this is a conscious process. I'm Allie, I'm a graduate student at Georgetown studying English and film, and on this podcast, The Queer Code, we look into the history of queer-coded or subtextually queer film. Each episode focuses on two films from one genre. Today's episode is on the quirky indie style drama film, like drama comedy, a dramedy. A dramedy. (laughs) A rom-com-ish? Sometimes it has romantic elements, but it doesn't follow like the traditional like rom-com structure. Trajectory. Yeah. And I'm saying indie style because some of these are actual indie movies, but most of them are like made by like big studios, Mm -hmm. but made to look as though... Like it's an auteur, like indie <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> vision. Like, whoa, we had a really low budget. Paramount. <laughs> right. Um, so, yeah, and we're going to talk about specifically the two films um, the 1961 film Breakfast at Tiffany's and the 2001 film The Royal Tenenbaums. And our co host today is Ian. Hello, I'm, I'm Ian. <laughs> Ian's a big fan of of Gwyneth Paltrow. I am. I'm like an OG Gwyneth stan. <laughs> I would describe myself um, completely there aren't unironically. A lot of those. There really aren't. No. Like the other day, I I well, was posting about this podcast, and I walked into a room, and someone said, "Can I ask you a rude question?" And they're like, "Why do you like Gwyneth Paltrow?" And I was like, "Why do you?" Because she's a not? beautiful monster. I was like, "She's amazing." <laughs> She has made an empire of, like, health and wellness. Those are both in, like, air quotes. Um, Despite having no medical qualifications Or any qualifications. Other Um, than just, like, being hot. Other than being, like, beautiful and famous and rich. And blonde. (laughs) And blonde. And I think that she straddles a really interesting line of, like, self-awareness and complete lack of (laughs) self-awareness. And to me, that's, like, the most aspirational (laughs) quality. We're talking about quirky indie film and it's like star, Mm -hmm. which is usually the manic pixie dream girl. And this is a term that's been like super contested over the years. So it was originated by uh, Nathan Rabin in an article for the AV Club in 2007, I believe. Mm -hmm. And he was using it to describe... Kirsten Dunst's character in the movie Elizabeth Town. Oh, have you seen Elizabeth Town? I have Town? not seen Elizabeth Town. I'm not gonna lie, I love Elizabeth okay. Town. It's it's worth a watch. It's so stupid. Uh, oh, I mean, I mean, like, <laughs> but I love it. Okay. Um. So yeah. So he created this term. I'm gonna read his his quote about it. In this piece, he wrote, "Dunst embodies a character type I like to call the manic pixie dream girl." 
the Manic Pixie Dream Girl exists solely in the fevered imaginations of sensitive writer-directors to teach broodingly soulful young men to embrace life and its infinite mysteries and adventures. So, yeah, she's just, according to Nathan Rabin, a male fantasy, and then a bunch of people, Nathan Rabin included, made a bunch of lists that were like, all the Manic Pixie Dream Girls in film, and they included a lot of, like, characters that people like and then it also started to be a critique that was lobbed at like female actresses Mm. (laughs) for like like zoe deschanel for example for like embodying that as opposed to like people who write roles that are like boring and unrealistic so that's super interesting because well i mean for a lot of reasons like one (laughs) it establishes it this whole like character type as within the parameters of the male imagination like it's yeah like imposed on women by men and yeah. they exist as objects in the male imagination. Right. And then it also blurs the boundary between like people and character. Like Zoe Deschanel as, as a Zoe person. Deschanel right. versus like as Summer in 500 Days of Summer. Yeah. Yeah. She really got, we all, I feel like we all <laughs> Zoe Deschanel we an did. apology yeah. <laughs> for like equating her with like, yeah, characters she played in yeah. movies. Which is super <laughs> And then also the fact that this is like, so this is like early to mid 2000s. This is like early, what is it? Early aughts? No, it's like mid aughts. Okay, so mid aughts. Right? Yeah. But then it becomes like a retrospective kind of thing, like looking back on like what has been this, or what might be recategorized as the Manic Pixie Dream Girl. Yeah, so like they look back to like, at like 20s and 30s movies and was like, Catherine Hepburn is a Manic Pixie Dream Girl. And it's like, "Uh, Uh, was she? Is she? Yeah. I don't think so. And so does Zoe Kazan. She also doesn't think so. <laughs> she's, she's, she's not buying into God, this. these transitions. Um, so, yeah, in a 2012 interview um, with Vulture, promoting her film Ruby Sparks, which I think she co-wrote and starred in, she was asked if her character was a manic pixie dream girl, and she responded that she felt like that was a really sexist term that was more reflective of men who were watching movies and not the movies and the female characters themselves. Uh, She said, I think that to lump together all individual, original, quirky women under that rubric is to erase all difference. Like, I've read pieces that describe Annie Hall as a manic pixie dream girl, Catherine Hepburn and Bringing Up Baby. To me, these are fully-fledged characters that are being played by really smart actresses. I just think it's misogynist. I don't want that term to survive. I want it to die. (laughs) Slow clap. (laughs) Which is my favorite part of that quote. Um... So yeah, and for the purposes of this this podcast, mm. <laughs> where we talk about gay people, yes, um, they exist. <laughs> something that no one talks about, and that we're gonna talk about, we're gonna talk about. <laughs> is that the manic pixie dream girl character is normally bisexual or pansexual, um, and yeah, it's just kind of it's just accepted. Yeah, like coded coded as queer. You're right, and. I think we talked we talked about like how sometimes this is seen as like a holdover from the sort of like male fantasy right. of like a woman desiring another woman not for like her own like a femme women woman yeah. wanting to be with other yeah not for her own like agency and desire yeah. but like for this this masculine for this viewer. male fantasy but we're gonna like say no <laughs> yeah we think no <laughs> we're gonna like <laughs> say that I think know, it's like, misogynist to think that about yeah. women who 
present femme and also have sex with women. Yeah. And we're going to say, like, no, like, these characters are actually maybe genuinely queer. Maybe they're actually just gay. Yes. And it's not about men. It's not about men. <laughs> Surprise. <laughs> Surprise. It just gets, like, reconfigured that way yeah. in this, this kind of criticism. Yeah. yeah. Oh, also, I guess I should probably say Nathan Rabin has since kind of apologized um, for coining the term and has been like, I think, became too big of a deal. But I'm still mad at him. (laughs) (laughs) But just so you know, he has. There's been like a little bit of a walk back. Right. Yeah. Yeah. He's kind of, yeah, apologized. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, most Manic Pixie Dream Girls are gay in some way. So like in 500 Days of Summer, Zoe Deschanel's character sleeps with a woman at one point. Mm -hmm. In Scott Pilgrim vs. the World, Ramona Flowers is bisexual. Uh, in Mar- uh, Marco Tenenbaum, <laughs> the Royal Tenenbaums, Margo is bisexual. Because there's like this one scene where she's in Paris and she's with a woman who is like not wearing clothes. Um, and that's like <laughs> the only, like one of the only nude scenes yeah. in the film, right? Yeah, I think it might be... We might see Owen Wilson's butt at one point, but yeah. other than that, it's the only like frontal nudity yeah. in the film, and it yeah. is like an R-rated film, so they could have had more frontal, more nudity. frontal nudity. They did yeah. not. And it's it's interesting that also it's like not, it's like she's in Paris, you know. It's supposed to be this yeah. sort of like, <laughs> like sort of bohemian, Artist, bohemian like bohemian lifestyle. Yeah, yeah, but and it's like framed in the context of like a montage, right? Oh of yeah, it was like. When they're like, like Margot's so slutty and she's been cheating on everyone. Yes, like we have to like make her out to be a bad person because she wants to yeah. leave her loveless marriage to Bill Murray. <laughs> <laughs> she does kind of look. She does kind of, my favorite part of the she film. She loves him kind is of. Bill Murray asks Margot as she's getting into a taxi cab, like, but do you still love me? And she's like, I mean, I think I do kind of. <laughs> Which to me is just one of the like most cutting, hilarious, grim one one liners in this movie, which is full of them. I feel like I was gonna talk earlier about quirky films, and I I didn't, but that scene really gets (laughs) at like the so what like quirky films do that's different from like just a straight up drama or a straight up comedy is that there is a lot of like satire similar to what you would see in a comedy and also a lot of melodrama, similar to what you see in a drama. But it mixes them together. Um, one critic I was reading called it the Melancomic. Okay. And isn't that great? That's great. <laughs> um, and yeah, so like the idea is you are like poking fun and critiquing characters and relationships, but at the same time you're staying really like empathetic. Mm. And so it's like a really sentimental and emotional kind of movie which is why lots of people make fun of it because yeah. people like to make fun of feelings That's, i mean I, I guess i have a lot of thoughts in response oh my to that. god the yes. first one though is one by melodrama by lord on itunes <laughs> never forget <laughs> a beautiful album it's a good album um you're right but that's super interesting like the whole discussion about like comedy and melodrama and sort of like like it's a lot like it's a little bit much but through that kind of excess you actually get to stay closer to the characters and so yeah like that's like i found myself throughout rewatching the royal tenenbaums being like am i supposed to laugh or like cry (laughs) like i didn't know what to like (laughs) feel because it was like something would be so funny but it's also like 
at a character's expense. Yeah. Where it's like t- something takes a deep like psychic toll, but you're like meant to laugh at them. Yeah. Which is really interesting. Like I don't, yeah. you don't know what to feel. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry. Is he all right? Sure. Sure, he's okay, aren't you, cat? Poor old cat. Poor slob. Poor slob without a name. The way I look at it, I don't have the right to give him one. We don't belong to each other. We just took up by the river one day. I don't even want to own anything until I can find a place where me and things go together. I'm not sure where that is, but I know what it's like. It's like Tiffany's. Tiffany's? You mean the jewelry store? That's right. I'm crazy about Tiffany's. Listen. You know those days when you get the mean reds? The mean reds? You mean like the blues? No. The blues are because you're getting fat or maybe it's been raining too long. You're just sad, that's all. The mean reds are horrible. Suddenly you're afraid and you don't know what you're afraid of. Did you ever get that feeling? Sure. When I get it, the only thing that does any good is to jump into a cab and go to Tiffany's. Calms me down right away. The quietness and the proud look of it, nothing very bad could happen to you there. If I could find a real life place that made me feel like Tiffany's, then... Then I'd buy some furniture and give the cat a name. So that was a clip from one of the opening scenes of Breakfast at Tiffany's. It's the scene where Holly, our main character, and Paul, our love interest, first meet each other. Breakfast at Tiffany's was released in 1961. It was directed by Blake Edwards with a screenplay by George Axelrod. It tells the story of Holly Golightly, played by Audrey Hepburn, who is an escort living in New York City who also communicates weekly messages for the mob, sort of unknowingly, but also like she definitely knows what's up. So the film focuses on the relationship between Holly and her neighbor Paul Varjak, played by George Peppard? Peppard? I don't know. Paul is a struggling writer who's financed by a married woman whom he's sleeping with. She is referred to as his decorator, and it is a very financial sexual exchange slash relationship. Paul is just kind of fascinated by Holly, by like her lifestyle and just her very unconventional approach to life. Holly is trying to marry for money, and she dates two different millionaires during the film, Rusty Trawler and Jose. I, I don't know his last name. Holly's tragic backstory is revealed when her ex-husband, Doc, shows up in New York from Texas. Doc is, like, a much older man, like, a lot older. Uh, he and Holly got married when she was 14, and, like, he took her and her brother Fred in because they were kind of homeless and, like, hungry, and... And the movie treats Doc like he's, like, a good guy for, like, loving Holly and all of this, but it's super uncomfortable because she's literally 14 years old. But nobody has a problem with it because, I don't know, I guess it was 1961. So Doc reveals that Holly's birth name is actually Lula May, and he says that he wants her to come home and raise his children, her, like, adopted children, but, I mean, they're divorced, so her, like, ex-stepchildren. Holly refuses, Doc leaves on a train, and that's where she says, like, the famous line about, like, don't love a wild thing or whatever. Paul and Holly eventually hook up. Paul is really happy, and he ditches his decorator slash patron. Holly then denies that there's anything between them, and she continues dating Jose. 
Paul and Holly grow apart. Paul starts writing more. Holly's brother, Fred, who was in the army, he dies, and Holly's, like, really upset about it because he was her only family, and he was, like, everything to her, and she's really sad. Uh, Holly decides to move to South America with Jose, but then she is arrested for mob activity because she's been, like, transporting messages from this man who's in prison and is definitely still part of the mob. Um, Jose dumps her because of the scandal. Uh, she decides that she belongs with Paul after they have, like, a big fight about, like, can people belong to people? And they decide they can, and then they kiss in the rain and, like, look for her cat together. And it's cute. And, like, this final kissing in the rain scene, there's, like, a big chorus and music, and it's, it's, like, a really big deal. It's also one of the few, like, noticeably romantic scenes between her and Paul. So, this film is actually based on a novella by Truman Capote. A lot of people have speculated on who Holly Golightly is based on. She seems to be partially based on Capote's mother, whose name was Lily May, really similar to Holly's name, Lula May, or Holly's secret name. Uh, Capote's mother, Lily May, briefly moved to New York City, and she went by the name Nina there, and she kind of tried to reinvent herself. Holly Golightly also seems to be based on a lot of Capote's friends. Truman Capote had a bunch of like really wealthy, glamorous female friends. They were referred to as his swans, and supposedly he took inspiration from their lives. In the novella, Holly seems to be bisexual, even though she does not really identify herself that way, but there are multiple points where she talks about being attracted to and having sex with women. She says Greta Garbo is her ideal woman, and Greta Garbo is also rumored to be bisexual or lesbian in some way. So the character that the film turns into Paul Varjak, the big hetero hero character, he is based on Capote's unnamed narrator, who's kind of like a Capote stand-in. Oh, also, I definitely didn't mention this before, but Truman Capote is also gay. Capote, when he was selling, like, the rights to this to the studio, he actually requested to play this character in the film, and the studio refused, partially because they need to turn this narrator, who is, like, definitely presumed to be gay in the book, into, like, you know, our, like, sexy, heterosexual leading man. So Holly and the narrator in the book do not have a romantic relationship. It's definitely more of, like, a gay man being, like, fascinated. But he's also, like, repulsed and just generally obsessed with this, like, dynamic and, like, glamorous woman. So in the transition from novella to film, it was definitely kind of straight-washed. And, like, it was turned into, like, a very, quote-unquote, like, conventional, classic Hollywood narrative of, like two straight people who are in love. Audrey was under contract to Paramount. We just thought she would be wonderful in it. They didn't, Paramount didn't think she would play it because she was such a kind of sweet and proprietary kind of lady that they didn't think she would play a part where a, a woman gets $50 to go to the powder room. Certainly in her mind, and understandably so, it was a big jump from the Capote Holly Go Lightly to our film's Holly Go Lightly. And she just didn't know whether she could do that sort of thing. I thought she did a wonderful job. I liked it because she was very naive, and it was like playing against that character. And I think that's what it takes to play that part and get away with it, you know? Well, I just told her I thought she would be absolutely great not to expect her to be. The uh, Holly Golightly of Truman's book. Truman Capote originally visualized Marilyn Monroe in the part, 
and she probably would have been allowed to play the character as he uh, had created her in the book, but they unfortunately wouldn't let Audrey do that. You kind of would have expected Marilyn, who, you know, was very sexy, to... She was kind of obvious for the part, and so we thought we could do better, and when Audrey said she would do it, even though Paramount didn't think she would, that's how we got her. I don't think that the majority of the audience in those days really ever thought of Audrey Hepburn as a hooker. So that was a clip from a 2006 documentary short film called Breakfast at Tiffany's, The Making of a Classic, where they interviewed the director of Breakfast at Tiffany's, some of Hepburn's co-stars, Hepburn's son, and just kind of a lot of other people who knew her. Okay, so Breakfast at Tiffany's, Holly Golightly, um, sh she's a, we'll say escort? An escort, a sort of like bohemian figure, like... Bohemian figure who makes money doing some kind of ambiguous sex work. Like potentially conveying messages from the... For the mafia, also. Oh, yeah, she also oh. is conveying messages for the mafia. <laughs> Fun fact. Weather reports. <laughs> she is our protagonist. She, she, I mean, she's like a freelancer, like, before that became, like, yeah. the millennial condition. She's like a freelance sex worker slash yeah. mafia yeah. Like she, inform the, communicator? Commu runner? She, she just runner? Participant? I mean, what are some of these neutral? <laughs> I don't know titles for people who are involved in the mafia. Like she goes to, to visit Sing Sing Prison once a week, mm -hmm. and she just delivers a weather report. Casually. Casually. Yeah. What may or may not have, like, an ulterior coded meaning. Seems to be very obvious yeah. when it's about, what, snow in snow New Orleans? New Orleans. <laughs> like, hey, there's coke in New Orleans this weekend, you guys. <laughs> I mean, you can see. <laughs> who knows? So... Breakfast at Tiffany's was, it's really surprising that it was made at all, especially in the 60s, um, because this was during the same period when the motion picture production code, or the Hayes Code, was still in effect. Okay, so, the Hayes Code. To get your movie played, so, like, it wasn't legally required that you, um, like, abide by the motion picture Hayes Code standards, but if you wanted your movie to be played in American theaters, it had to, like, be... Uh, certified under the Hayes Code. So what that was was just like a code of uh, regulations that required like no sexiness on yeah. screen, <laughs> um, heterosexual, and then like no gayness of any kind. And then later on it was like, well, if, there, if you have to be gay, like frame it like you're diseased and like yeah. this is a bad thing. It's a problem. Yeah. So like this is the reason, like, this code is the reason that, like, screwball comedies became popular in, like, the late 30s and stuff because, like, they were supposed to be, like, essentially sex comedies but without the actual sex, which is, like, back and forth. Like, like really rapid witty, dialogue. Yeah. Friday, <laughs> like, banter. Right, yeah. So that was, so most of, like, a lot of making movies during this time period was getting things by the censor. So, like, in Breakfast at Tiffany's, like, the fact that they were able to get that movie made is really mm -hmm. shocking. Um, they hired a screenwriter who had previously written The Seven-Year Itch with Marilyn Monroe, and his name is George Axelrod, and he supposedly was, like, like whenever the uh, the 
code regulation people got a script from Axelrod, they were automatically just like, oh, God, <laughs> it's Axelrod. The <laughs> There's going to be sex. <laughs> and we're going to cut it all out. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so he adapted the the book into a screenplay. Um, and they ended up removing a character, not Paul, but just like a different character who just like, I guess the code said seemed too gay. <laughs> he was like too effeminate. So they just that's cut so him that's out. really interesting <laughs> that like I guess in the film this character would have been like the stand-in for the queer and like maybe, maybe. taking some of it away from Paul. Yeah. Who gets reconfigured as straight. Right. Yeah. Well that was like a really big part of like so when the studio was making the movie they were like, Okay, so like obviously the boy and girl get together, even though in the book it's like no (laughs) but yeah they were like obviously they're gonna get together and then they were like so in order to kind of combat the fact that in the book like the way that the narrator's written in the book he's not in holly he's (laughs) not particularly straight (laughs) yeah she goes to south america without him they were like well we need to really ramp up uh paul's heterosexuality of course (laughs) right (laughs) so that's how they kind of decided to i don't believe that in the novella uh paul is like sleeping with anyone for money like he is in the film so in the film they have him do that but it was like kind of okay in terms of like censorship and things because it was more like it was less about like oh it's scandalous and more about like well look look how, how straight he is, is. <laughs> like, he's having sex with that woman with. <laughs> <laughs> yeah which is so like the film is so like hell-bent on establishing a certain kind of on like hetero- straight just heterosexuality him. at all yeah <laughs> that that sort of like like heterosexuality trumps any kind of like scandal that might be used to construct it yeah so like when um paul and holly go to like kind of like a burlesque like strip club basically oh, yeah, i totally always forget about that scene yeah um and they like see a woman. I don't think you see like any like topless scenes or anything, but it's like pretty. It's it's quite scandalous. It's and very Audrey scandalous. Hepburn like drops her sunglasses. Yeah. And is like oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> but it's also like why would like it's just like a a weird scene. It's weird to think that someone who we've character who the movie has characterized as like she's an escort and she's like very like confident sexually yeah. and like very together and then to have her be like so shocked <laughs> at a, a strip female body <laughs> yeah. like, at wow. another woman yeah and i wonder if that's part of so in the in the novella as well like she so holly Lightly, the character has a lesbian roommate and she talks about how like she's definitely not a lesbian but like i mean aren't we all a little bit like, you know <laughs> everyone's a little and bit. it's like okay <laughs> and then she also is talking about like uh like who her ideal like person to be with would be or to get married to would be and she says it would be greta garbo and it's like this is all in the novella um so i wonder if when they were switching that to film they were like <laughs> they were like hmm. <laughs> we need to make it seem like she's really definitely never yeah. seen a naked woman before well, you- <laughs> it's not her <laughs> And you also, you mentioned, I think, previously to me that Audrey Hepburn was concerned about taking on this oh, role in terms concerned. of, like, her reputation yes. as a star. Yes. And so this this might have been, like, a concession of, like, oh, like, how scandalous, but also, like, she is scandalized by this, like, as yeah. the viewer is supposed to feel. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Right? So, like, sort of, like, allowing something, but also at the same time, like, you're supposed to feel weird about this. Like, <laughs> 
which is a like a strange thing to do yeah but like i guess i mean getting around it while also centralizing heterosexuality yeah at all costs i think that um with like well like so there are all these like parts of holly golightly that seem to like not make sense right um and kind of also of margaret tenenbaum where you're like how and i think that that's part of the whole like manic pixie dream girl character where it's like supposed to be like it's a very delicate balance of yeah. like she's like eccentric and weird and has unusual unconventional beliefs but also like she's fragile and like yeah. innocent in quotations that are not uh, yeah. you can't hear but, but like, <laughs> <they're> innocent <laughs> um and like vulnerable yeah. in in a lot of ways it's so interesting also that the the manic pixie dream girl is also like the locus of attention yeah like she attracts like people want to be around her everyone's obsessed obsessed with her her. like we're talking about her yeah that's why we're here but she also maintains like there's like a secrecy about her oh yeah which also maybe like many queer people can relate to (laughs) like (laughs) like like you're sort of like constantly um like, I guess it's kind of about knowledge. Like, how much do people know about you? And, like, what about you do you choose to tell other people? And how much of it is inferred or suggested? Yeah, and I think that that's definitely something that comes into play with, like, the issue of passing as straight. Like, yeah. most, like, manic pixie dream girls are categorized as, like, very femme. And most of them would pass as straight. And because yeah. of, like, the sort of world we live in, like, like I mean, I... <laughs> I'm a pretty femme, like, lesbian, so, like, yeah, everyone who meets me just assumes that I'm straight, and yeah. that's just how so, it is. <laughs> so then, like, the like the, the manic pixie dream girl maybe is, like, a, a queer figure in a lot of ways, but the, the kind of queerness that gets diminished is the actual, like, yeah. queerness. Yeah, and, like, the whole reading of, like, oh, like, her bisexual or pansexuality is just, like, a male fantasy is, like, another, it's, like, partly misogyny and like yeah. partly like bi erasure yeah <laughs> like just completely discounting the fact like oh maybe like she is a woman who like has her own sexuality and like wants things <laughs> outside of what you think about that but okay yeah. <laughs> let's wanna, talk about the bedroom scene do we want to talk about for a second time? <laughs> <laughs> so what's happened is holly has like holly and paul are both sex workers yeah. of a sort holly's an escort paul has like a what we decide to call her a patron, a patron i believe who who in the film is referred to as his decorator because she decorates, she his, decorates apartment. his apartment which she pays for um and he then pays and for and he then pays for with sex, with sex right yeah. so holly is like the guy she's like with right now is like being shitty so she leaves through the door a window and she's like in a bathrobe and she's like naked. Like on a but fire escape. Except for the bathroom. <laughs> yeah. And she's like hanging out on the fire escape outside Paul's apartment because he's her neighbor. As you do. Yeah. <laughs> and Paul is like naked in bed. Um his His patron. His patron his decorator, whatever. Mm-hmm. Like kisses him, like he's asleep, and she like mm-hmm. kisses him on the forehead and then like leaves money on the dresser. On the table. Yeah. And then yeah. leaves. And, and then, then leaves. Holly is like, well, I might as well just, like, climb on it. <laughs> Come in through the window. <laughs> I mean, I've met him once. Yeah. This sounds like a good idea. And so, yeah, so they have, like, a moment where Holly kind of makes a comment about the money and the decorator patron and, it, like, kind of reveals, like, she knows 
kind of what that arrangement is and paul gets kind of defensive and she's like no like trust me i get it and there's like a moment of like understanding between the two of them it's like like a like kind of like a solidarity like they both know the like pressures of that kind of yeah experience and then um so they like talk for a while they have drinks and then holly like gets in bed with him he's still naked Mm -hmm. she's still in the bathrobe and she like says like i don't know that she like likes him or something and that she he reminds her of her brother fred Fred. and she's like can i just call you Fred?" (laughs) he's like okay (laughs) (laughs) and then they like sleep together but not like sleep not like sex like they they literally literally just sleep sleep. (laughs) and like it's very like there's a lot of naked for no like sex or even really like sexiness like it feels like a like it feels really friendly and not sexy like it's not eroticized really no even though they're like in bed together yeah which feels like it's like a relic is not the right word like a like a leftover Mm. from the text where like the novella text where like they're just really good friends right um but yeah but in this scene it's like yeah, it's weirdly unsexy. It's also, like, interesting just thinking about the, like, the parameters of a movie from this time period mm-hmm. would, like, if it's sort of meant to uphold certain conventions about, like, yeah. the what order of things should happen in a heterosexual relationship. Like, right. the sort of, like, really intimate bedroom moment doesn't come after marriage, but it comes in the first, like, 20 minutes of the film. Yeah. And then after that, it's a process of, like recodifying it into like okay how do we get these people <laughs> into like the proper you know yeah like context yeah like do like the cute romantic things yeah yeah so we're gonna listen to an excerpt from an interview with audrey hepburn in 1961 in london right after the film was released where hepburn talks about the term kook Uh, what about this picture? The title, Breakfast at Tiffany. I thought Tiffany was with Julius Sharp. Yes, well, it is. And uh, the title comes from the fact that this girl gets a great lift and, and uh, fun out of walking down Fifth Avenue at the crack of dawn with a breakfast which she's bought in a drugstore and of looking a... in the window at Tiffany's. What sort of a girl is she? She's a, what they call in America these days a kook. What does that mean? <laughs> Spelled with a K, I believe. <laughs> which is a dizzy, gay type of girl. Anything like you? I'm not quite that way, no. <laughs> so, Breakfast at Tiffany's was, in so many ways, like, it's such a, like, so surprising that it got made. Um, and it got made in part by how we talked about, like, really ramping up the heterosexuality and, like, <laughs> <laughs> Look, Paul is so so heterosexual. So we swear, <laughs> we swear like, he's not gay. <laughs> like he's in his apartment with one woman, one woman, and she leaves, and another woman immediately comes in. Right, because he's so heterosexual. Yes. Um, despite like <laughs> how unsexy. Anyway, <laughs> the bedroom scene is, but whatever. So, um, another tactic they used to kind of like, like they wanted Breakfast at Tiffany's to be kind of somewhat true to the novel but they also so like they wanted to make a film about like an escort a sex worker but they also like 
could never acknowledge that that's what she did and like that's what like like she's a sex worker but they can never say that um so the like manic pixie dream girl characterization is also like a way of like categorizing like her like sex work as like um so they use the word uh kooky (laughs) (laughs) so in the marketing like before the film was released so when they were making the poster they purposely had um like it's a shot of audrey hepburn and like the tight black dress with the pearls but they insisted that she have her cat on her shoulder (laughs) the cat whose name is (laughs) whose name is cat Cat. (laughs) (laughs) because like for them they were like oh see it's kooky (laughs) it's not all about how sexy she is because there's a cat look she's got a cat (laughs) how weird and crazy so it's like whoa she's too quirky for it to be so sexy so they in the marketing stuff they were really emphasizing that she was a kook and in one press release i'm gonna read it i wanted to find an audio clip of it because that would have been amazing (laughs) but just picture someone like typing this up and like yeah a smoke picture like an old man with room. a cigar and thick glasses <laughs> who is like gotta let the public know <laughs> what yeah. they're getting into <laughs> so in this press release it reads let's face it now what is a kook kook is a word frequently employed by the offspring of this bewildered generation <laughs> she's a kook and all that jazz they say i don't know who <laughs> they are they? but they say it but what do they mean, Dad? <laughs> dad. I guess they're marketing this movie to like <laughs> to like Dad. <laughs> I don't know. Okay. At the moment, the only authenticated self-styled kook is Miss Audrey Hepburn, who claims to be one as Holly Golightly in Jero Shepherd's Breakfast at Tiffany's. Holly Golightly keeps a fish in a bird cage, <laughs> which, <laughs> which I don't remember seeing that in the movie. I think that? she had a bird in a bird cage. Well, and then there's like the she tries to sneak the fishbowl out of the store oh, in a hat. You're right. But like, where where is the bird? Yeah, cage? she doesn't keep a fish no. in a bird cage. You are wrong, sir. <laughs> um, Holly Golightly takes breakfast on the sidewalk of Tiffany and Co. on Fifth Avenue. Holly Golightly wears clothes designed by Givenchy. Holly has a cat whose name is Cat. But what's a kook? Kook is not, as everybody associated with Breakfast at Tiffany's knows, a beatnik term. Oh, they really didn't like beatniks. I mean, like, sorry, like, Alan Ginsp. I mean, too gay. Maybe. <laughs> yeah, too gay. I don't know. Too communist, too probably. Communist. All those, like, didn't like West Truman Coast Capote or, either. Yeah. <laughs> um, couldn't be a beatnik term. No. The star is Audrey Hepburn. Oh, our favorite line. Not Audrey Hepburn. Hepburn. <laughs> <laughs> Which, like... You know that whoever came up with that pun just was like loved it, like patting themselves <laughs> on the back. Like, the dads will love this. The da- like, oh my god, look at this wordplay. All of that to say. All that to say. <laughs> they were really playing up this like she's kooky, and I think by kooky they essentially mean quirky. quirky. <laughs> um, Which becomes in this press release like completely distinct from sexuality or like like it's not a sexualized kookiness well though yeah they're using it to like play down the sexuality also play down any like political like anything gay anything, <laughs> anything political <laughs> anything like edgy they're like oh, no. she's just a she's little just eccentric a little she's not bisexual she's just a little weird how do you think Margot does or does not embody like the, the kind of kookiness? Ooh, the kook yeah. yeah i think Margot is really similar to holly golightly which 
obviously that's why I put them together for this. <laughs> yes, thing. which is like acting like this such just a happened. Great, like observe, like I would never have thought Thank to you. put these films together. Like what, forty years apart? Did I do like basic math? No, right? I think you did it correctly. Um, oh my god, like, I think it's exactly forty, 40 years. years yeah. Which is, but they're both like, I mean, echo like echoes of each other. What are you doing in my tent? Just listening to some records. Aren't you supposed to be in the hospital? Check myself out. stitches did you get? I don't know. You want to see? swimming and he came out to me in a canoe we were only married nine days and i heard about eli no poor eli anyway we mostly just talked about you you did yeah i guess that was the attraction if you know what i mean That was a scene from the Royal Tenenbaums between Margot and Richie Tenenbaum. It's one of the like most emotional parts of the film and it happens after uh, the Richie character attempts suicide. So the Royal Tenenbaums came out in 2001. It was director Wes Anderson's third movie and probably the one that like really cemented Anderson's style and look. It was co-written by Wes Anderson and Owen Wilson. Owen Wilson also starred in the movie as Eli Cash. So the film is narrated by Alec Baldwin, and it tells the story of the Tenenbaum family. Royal and Ethelene Tenenbaum, played by Gene Hackman and Angelica Houston, are the very wealthy divorced parents of three former child prodigies. Chaz, played by Ben Stiller, Margot, played by Gwyneth Paltrow, and Richie, uh, played by Luke Wilson, Owen Wilson's brother in real life. The film takes place after the three children have grown up and they're all kind of like stuck in some way in their adult lives. So Chaz is having a nervous breakdown because like his wife died in a plane crash um, and their dog and two sons survived. So Chaz is just kind of a mess. Margot was a successful playwright, but she hasn't written in years and she's in this very emotionless marriage with an older man played by Bill Murray and... <laughs> their marriage is one of my favorite parts of this movie uh richie was a famous tennis player but he had this like very comical breakdown and a really important tennis match at some 
open or something, I don't know. He spent the last year like sailing around the world kind of aimlessly and like writing letters to his best friend, like his childhood best friend, Eli Cash. So Richie and Margot are in love with each other and it's like, it's like only halfway incest because they're not actual blood relatives. Margot was adopted from a family from like rural, I want to say Indiana, maybe Indiana, but somewhere like where farms are, I think. So this film is actually really the story of Royal, the father character, being redeemed and fixing his relationship with his wife or his ex-wife and his kids. Um, honestly, most of Wes Anderson's movies are about like forgiving or coming to terms with like the fact that you have like a really shitty father, which makes me really interested in like Wes Anderson's relationship with his dad because he's definitely working through something in like all of his films. Anyway, so Royal pretends to be dying of cancer as a ploy to make his family like feel bad for him and like let him move into like the childhood home. So all the kids move in and they're all together um, and they've all been kind of estranged from each other the past few years, like not just Royal, his ex-wife and kids, but also like the kids from each other. Um, their house is like this huge, beautiful Manhattan brownstone and like each child or now adult has like their own like floor <laughs> that they live on it's amazing um so as royal spends time with his family he realizes that like he really does love them and he did kind of like mess things up by leaving his family and like not ever caring about what happened in their lives ever um but then they find out that royal is lying about the cancer <gasps> and his wife and his kids kick him out of the family home and they're like rightfully <laughs> pretty mad. So Richie works with Margot's husband and like together they dig into Margot's past and they find out that Margot has been married before when she was like 19. Um, it lasted, I think she says it lasted nine days, which we saw in the clip. Um, she also had a relationship with a woman in Paris and she's been having like so many affairs since she got married and one of those affairs is with Richie's childhood friend Eli um, again played by Owen Wilson so when Richie finds out about this he's really upset and he ends up like attempting suicide but he's found in time and taken to the hospital and like he survives uh, Margot and Richie end up telling each other they love each other which is the scene that we heard in the clip um, they decide to be secretly in love with each other. Um, along the way, Royal has shown his ex-wife and his kids that he's changed and they forgive him. And then the film ends years later with Royal's actual funeral attended by his entire family and Eli. And it's a really cute, sad scene. And that's the end. So Margot, so if you Google Margot Tenenbaum and are trying to find like... I'm going to do that now, just like see what <laughs> just comes up so it. we have some like references. <laughs> so I Googled Margot Tenenbaum to see if there were any like hot takes that I could mm -hmm. like reference in this and I couldn't find any. All I could find were like fashion shows like yeah. in like 2016 and I think 2015 where like, yeah, all that comes up is like like so, her outfit. <laughs> yeah, so it's like, like Margot in like a brown fur coat mm -hmm. and like a striped is that a lacoste her lacoste dress, dress yeah of course so like again class also she's wearing loafers yeah if you can't see in the picture but she is and then like yeah. the crazy intense eyeliner that i'm obsessed amazing with. 
and then like like a sort of like pink lip like not not too bold no bold lip no bold because well, she's going bold eyes you can't go yeah, bold so lip can't, and bold eyes yeah Obs. and then but and like the thing about all of these photos is that she's not smiling in any oh of them. no like the sort like she looks extremely pensive thoughtful mm-hmm. like what is she thinking but like the the red bur- is it Barrette? It's barrette, not barrette. Barrette, yeah. Barrette. Oh, barrette, yeah. <laughs> so the little red fl- floral barrette she wears and combined with like the intense eyeliner I think is fantastic because yeah. I think it really reflects the whole like, again, like the balance with like this like manic pixie dream girl or like kook character yeah, <laughs> where it's like there is like an element of her look. Like it's like a very like her dress is tight and it's kind of a sexy look, mm-hmm. but it also is like. Like, she's been wearing the same thing in the flashbacks as she does in the present, yeah. like, since she was 14. So it's, like, a weird, like, child nostalgia kind of look. Yeah. And, like, almost like a, like, how a cartoon character, like, wears the same yes. thing, like, every day. <laughs> like, like the, the character becomes, like, so static in yeah. their visual appearance that then their actions can be, like, quirky yeah. and weird, you know, like, whatever. Yeah. But yeah, like the, so then there's like that balance, but like with the like dark eyeliner and the not smiling and the big fur coat that it's like, it's mature and not mature at the same time and like sad, but also like nostalgic and youthful and it makes you feel things just like her, like as an image. Okay. So we're going to listen to a short audio clip from a 2018 screening of the Royal Tenenbaums at UC Santa Barbara. So this is an interview after the screening with Gwyneth Paltrow. I think it's helpful to have Paltrow's perspective on the Richie Margot relationship and how that kind of like incest relationship um, has affected their like characters in the film. I think it's such a beautiful, tragic love story because you know, you have this, what is essentially forbidden love between siblings for all intents and purposes. And yes, they're not blood related, but to grow up in a house together uh, as children and imagine the complications that that would bring. Um, And it's just so sad. And I, I feel like she's part of her brokenness is that she can't essentially marry her brother. Yeah. (laughs) Um, and his too, and it's this very tragic vein that runs through the film. There's like a lot of weird love triangles. Yeah, in lots the Royal of desire that lots is of, unrealized. Yes, um, kind of. I guess the clearest triangle would be Margot and her brother Richie, who like they are into each other. But it's like they're adopted, so mm-hmm. like it's not totally incest. It's like half. So it's like slightly taboo, but like we're not going all the way. Um, Flirting with incest. Flirting with incest. And then Eli, who is Richie's best friend, and he and Margo have been like having a relationship. Mm -hmm. And then adding a whole layer of incestual, like sibling relationships to this is that Owen Wilson and Luke Wilson play (laughs) Eli and Richie. And they're brothers in real life. So. so like there's like so many layers of like different of kinds incest. of, of incest. <laughs> but like not not full incest, just like we're like gesturing like towards proto incest. Yeah. <laughs> which which like I, I mean I'm not a huge Freud fan. Like I think we should stop talking about Freud. 
<laughs> but, but to talk about but to talk Freud. about Freud, like maybe that's instead of like whose whose whole thing was like the incest is what drives everything, is like that kind of gets recoded as queer in in the film. I think yeah, um, the incest like taboo or whatever like that's the most yeah like the idea controversial of like kind controversial of desire. desire. But I'm saying like instead of. That if it were public, people would like yeah. be weird which, about it. Which it is like a heterosexual desire in the film. Like it's Margot and yeah. Richie's real desire for each other, which yeah. is problematic. But I'm what I'm suggesting is like maybe how that like gets played out in the film is like it produces some kind of like queer feeling. Yeah. In that like not only is it these these two heterosexual well bisexual people maybe there's this like third player Eli <laughs> who <laughs> desires Margot. But also, I'm saying he desires Richie too in some I way. I think he does. And so this this whole incest taboo gets like reconfigured a little bit. Yeah. yeah. Well, because there's that one line where like Richie's like, "Really, you're you got with my best friend?" And she's like, "Well, we mostly just talked about you." <laughs> I think that was the appeal. <laughs> and then you're wondering like, "Oh, so that's the appeal for her because she wants to be with her brother, but like thinks it's too incesty." But like then, that's also the appeal, maybe for for Eli. Right. Is also kind of wanting to be pretty. Well, and like, and then there's this weird moment where, when Mar after Margot leaves Bill Murray and goes back to the Tenenbaum house, she finds Richie like in his underwear, like waiting in her closet. So it's like Eli or Eli. Oh God, I made this mistake. Last, <laughs> yeah, Eli. So the like heterosexual romantic partner, not really. It's a really great scene too. Yeah. And he's just like lurking in her closet. And it's like tidy whitey. Yeah, and his tidy and like a cowboy hat, I think. Yes. Um, obviously the cowboy course. hat too. So he's like literally in a closet. Yeah. Like he's he's transported himself to the Tenenbaum house and he's like hiding in the closet. Yeah. Um, which, you know, metaphorical, whatever. But like he's in a closet. And also like they like they hide their relationship and it feels like so, like, in Royal Tenenbaums, each child is, and basically each character, mm-hmm. each character is, like, stuck in some way. Yeah. And for Margot and Richie, their, like, being stuckness is really, so, like, Richie kind of, like, has always been obsessed with Margot and yeah. in love with Margot. And he has a nervous breakdown. <laughs> she gets married. And it's a really fantastic tennis match <laughs> where he, like, throws his racket at it's the ball like a so Bugs Bunny cartoon. <laughs> Also, I love that his tennis name is The Bomber. Oh, my God, yeah. <laughs> um, but, yeah, so it – and then for Margot, she's, like, in this marriage that she's just not really into. And she's kind of – she's also, like, a playwright, but she hasn't written in a while. And she's yeah. just kind of apathetic. So it feels like for both of them, like, repressing the, like, emotions they have toward each other yeah. have resulted in, like, inability to function. And it feels like – like, that's how it would be <laughs> if you are, like, gay and you're afraid of coming out or, like, like it. the way that it plays out is really similar to yeah. how it would play out if you're, like, closeted yeah. or ashamed of being gay or something like that. Yeah, that's, oh, that's super interesting. Isn't it? It is. Brilliant. And brilliant. Okay, so we're going to listen to a second Gwyneth Paltrow interview. Um, This one was from 2001, like right after Royal Tenenbaums came out, and we're going to hear Paltrow talk about the appeal of Margot Tenenbaum, and I think this kind of applies to also like the appeal of the Manic Pixie Dream Girl figure. 
Um, gosh, so much of her appealed to me. I mean, you know, that whole kind of secret existence that she has, um, the secret smoking and the affairs and kind of her imagination and just the whole what somebody would go through to be to do all of that and then to get so fed by all of that secretive stuff really intrigued me you know because I'm completely not that way um, and just her whole psychology and her mannerisms and everything I, I just I was obsessed with her she was just my favorite so when you read this when you finished reading this script what, what was your take on it did you think wow dysfunctional family or um, I thought it was really beautiful and funny and messed up and weird and just unlike anything I had ever read, it's really hard to characterize. You know, it is about a family who um, is not functioning properly, um, but it's so much more than that as well. Mm -hmm. I had another question for you. What, like, how do you see this... Um these trends of like the manic pixie dream girl or like the queer manic pixie dream girl like where do you see this like headed now where do i see it going like in the, now that we're in a new decade yeah like what's some of your oh, right because it's 2020 yeah so i've always liked the manic pixie dream girl character um and i get annoyed <laughs> and people are like <laughs> she's just a male fantasy she's not real i'm like they're like, if she were real, she'd be a mess. And I'm like, yeah, if you look at a lot of these characters, they are a mess. Margot Tenenbaum is a mess. A mess. <laughs> summer in 500 Days of Summer is a mess. Yeah. And that's what makes them so interesting. And, like, I think that there's, like, a weird, like, fear of, like, like, like it's, like, fi erasure and, like, femme erasure. And, like, yeah, there's just weird feelings about, like, yeah. women who are, like, emotional and messy and like yeah. queer and feminine all at the same time and it's like something that people don't like to think about so they're just like oh it's just yeah so i i hope yeah <laughs> that all of the messy internet critique that has like harmed these characters <laughs> just kind of disappears like, yeah i also want it to die jack <laughs> 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 Zoe, Zoe Kazan. what about you <laughs> I that's a good question. I <laughs> it's your <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> I'm really interested. I'm always I was just thinking about Ladybird, like as I always <laughs> constant constant thing. Yeah. But like like about You could read Ladybird. You could read Ladybird as girl is like manic Yeah, <laughs> as like a manic pixie dream girl. Um so I hope also that we can can bury this trope and maybe just evaluate characters on their own terms instead of imposing terms on them. Although I, I doubt that that will happen, but yeah, I, I, don't I think hope it's happen. I hope for it to happen. Um, but yeah, by it's all good by Gwyneth Paltrow, um, her first cookbook, and then watch the Goop Lab, and yeah. I like that you're doing marketing. This is not an advertisement. I'm just as though she also like needs this. Yeah, yeah. Like, as if, like Gwyneth, if you're listening, please give me a job. So this is the end of the Manic Pixie Dream Girl episode. But like with all of these episodes, um, there are a lot of sources and ideas that didn't make it into this uh, podcast because. There are a lot of ideas out there. So some of the sources I used 
are the book Fifth Avenue, 5 a.m., Audrey Hepburn and Breakfast at Tiffany's by Sam Wasson, Wasson, W-A-S-S-O-N. Um, so this book was really helpful. Like if you're a Breakfast at Tiffany's super fan and you just have so many questions about every single detail of how this movie got made, that's what this book does. And it's super, super interesting if that's what you're into. Also, when it comes to the use and the misuse of the term Manic Pixie Dream Girl, a lot of that discussion happened via the internet. <laughs> like we talked about with Nathan Rabin's AV Club articles, and there are also a lot of YouTube video essays about the Manic Pixie Dream Girl, and some of them are really good. So one that I recommend is The Misuse of the Term Manic Pixie Dream Girl by YouTuber Trope Anatomy. Trope Anatomy looks at Summer and 500 Days of Summer, who is a lot of times cited as like the quintessential example of a manic pixie dream girl, and who's also bi or pansexual, and the character Clementine from the movie Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, which is one of my all-time favorite movies. And for our next episode, for our next two episodes, we are going to be talking about the subset of horror that is the slasher movie, and it's my favorite genre of horror, and yeah it's gonna be fun <laughs> okay